This is Erica in Edmonton. Shannon in Durham. And Chip, who missed an opportunity when we recorded the Quality of Mercy podcast a while back. Continue. (laughs) And you are listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5, episode 29, A Race Through Dark Places. All right, dear, explain yourself. Yeah. We'll get to that. I promise. (laughs) Okay. All right. I am on tenterhooks. Uh, Wow. Hmm. No, now I'm just going to sit here and try to think of, think about what you can mean, because that's great podcasting. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, instead, what I will do is, is I think I should probably catch up all of our listeners. Anybody who has, uh, has jumped on here for some reason for the first time, watched this episode of Babylon 5 as your very first episode. Uh, first of all, if so, come and tell us on the website what you thought, because it seems like a weird place to jump on. But hey, I'm, yeah, I'm not judging. If it is... What you need to know at this point, the year is 2259, and telepathy is now a thing, although only a small percentage of humans are actually telepathic. The PsyCore is an organization intended to protect both telepaths and the privacy of normals. Alfred Bester, a powerful PsyCop, has visited Babylon 5 before, and he didn't exactly make any friends. Speaking of Babylon 5, it is a space station, home to many humans and aliens, and also a convenient stopping-off place on the way to many, many places in the galaxy. Talia Winters is the commercial telepath assigned to B5. When she arrived, she was fiercely loyal to the core, but as of late, she's had some second thoughts. Oh, and Captain John Sheridan has recently taken over command of the station. Dr. Stephen Franklin is passionate about what he believes in. Commander Susan Ivanova hates Psychor. And Minbari Ambassador Delenn went through some sort of transformation to become at least partially human. And that pretty much brings you up to A Race Through Dark Places, in which Bester returns to Babylon 5, seeking to stamp out an underground railroad that's funneling rogue telepaths away from Earth— After meeting the rogue telepaths and hearing their stories, Talia Winters decides the core is not what she thought it was, and she decides to help the telepaths escape. Because of a special power bestowed upon her by her former lover, now super energy being, they're able to escape in a way Bester is not even aware of. And hey, it turns out Dr. Franklin was the ringleader of the operation the whole time, but now that B5 is too hot for it, they are closing up shop. Meanwhile, Sheridan and Ivanova are forced to pay rent on their quarters. Sort of. And Sheridan and Delenn have a dinner date, which is apparently delightful, if you measure delight by the amount of laughter and possibly cleavage involved. And that is a race (laughs) through dark places. How are you guys feeling about this? This was a good episode, uh, but it showed a couple of weaknesses, I think, in uh, sort of the JMS style of uh, storytelling. But uh, and, and I'll get to those details in a, in a minute. Uh, but I I really enjoyed it. I really enjoy that it is a game changer for one of our main characters. That's my favorite part about this episode. Mm-hmm. Shannon, how about you? Also, overall, really liked it. It feels a bit like um, how in season one we had all of these episodes that focused on different characters and introduced them and like really gave us um, a lot of background on those characters. And I feel like this season we're going to we we're starting to see similar episodes. And like Chip said, game changers. Now that all the characters are in place, season two is all about pushing the chess pieces forward to see what happens. And I think that, you know, between last episode and this episode uh, with a spider in the web and a race through dark places, uh, we really get a whole lot of shift to Talia 
um, who has been very much in the background for much of the show so far, except for an episode here and there. Yeah, yeah. Stephen is he's, is coming to terms with that. He actually decided uh, during this, he declared that Delenn is this season's Talia because she has hardly been on at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that is a Fair point. point. That that is a point. Um, but yeah, uh, Talia is completely changed, and uh, there is no character on the show that has made such a transformation, except for Delenn. But that's sort of at this point, that's cosmetic. Mostly, mm-hmm. we we have seen that her people don't entirely trust her anymore, and she's tentative when she's talking to Captain Sheridan about wanting to learn to wanting to learn about humanity more. So there's a change there, and of course the big change of Sinclair leaving and and Sheridan coming on. But in terms of a character arc flipping. And uh, a, a character really turning a corner. Andrea Thompson, Talia Winters, that, you know, that's it. She has gone from being a psychor believer to a dissident in the space of two episodes. And, and I like the fact that it's two episodes. It's not one episode. It didn't mm-hmm. all just happen this time. Mm-hmm. Um, the experience with the Free Mars guy started this. And... Hearing from all of the telepaths uh, in the Underground Railroad finished the job. And it ends with a bang. It, it takes just enough time to make it believable. And then it, it is totally believable right up to the end where Ivanova tells her to take the badge off. And Talia takes the badge off. And mm-hmm. it's it's sitting, sitting ominously in the foreground. But <laughs> it's everything. Everything changes for Talia Winters in this episode. It does. And, you know, I think... You're right. I think the change pretty much does happen in these two episodes. However, speaking of Ivanova, I do think that Talia was, to a certain extent, primed for this because of her, you know, her interactions with with Ivanova from the very, very beginning from when she first arrived. She'd been, you know, she's trying to report to Ivanova. Ivanova won't have it because of Psycor. And they eventually do sit down and she explains why she hates the core. And then Talia explains why she likes the core. So I think before she got to Babylon 5, I don't think Talia had really run into anybody who was was anti-Psycor. So the fact that she had Ivanova there to at least open her mind to the the idea of it, uh, I think that that makes these two episodes all the more believable because yeah. she had something. It's not like she's going from from blind devotion to suddenly not. Yeah, and then, of course, there's, uh, you know, Mind War back in season one that, mm-hmm. you know, nudges the door open a bit wider because there's something there that supports what Ivana has been telling her. That's right. Um, you know, Talia's not feeling super great about Bester. And uh, Jason Arnhart told her a fair bit about um, the dark side of Psycor, although she could sort of dismiss that, I guess, as, you know, just a few rogue elements here or there or whatever. Uh, Legacies is also a really important episode because this is the one where Ivanova yes. and Winters are tussling over the fate of our ingenue new telepath and w- what she's going to do. Um Talia never changes her mind in that episode that uh, the girl really belongs with Psycor. But at the end of that episode, you know, we have detente between Ivanova and Winters. They are going to get a drink after hours, and they respect each other's opinions at this point. So this is a really, really well-crafted character arc for Talia Winters. It's been, it's been kind of steady. Mm-hmm. It really has. 
so as far as the evolution of her change with Psychor, we think that that was well handled and believable. What did you think about the run of this story itself as far as, you know, Bester coming to find them and then and then the way that we handled Bester at the end? Did you guys fall for that? I think the first time I did, for the first time I watched it, if I remember correctly, thinking like, you know, oh, crap, she, you know, was in it all along uh, until we get the the surprise that all the telepaths were able to band together and uh, fool Bester. And open question on, you know, they said that Talia tipped the balance, but then we also see in this episode that Talia's power seems to have grown in some way um, since Mind War, since uh, Ironheart gave her whatever it is he gave her besides the telekinesis. Uh, the fact well, that we saw that Talia with the penny gag. Yeah, there's the penny thing that, you know, she drills it into the wall. Um, There's the fact that she uh, can block Bester, and she didn't realize that she would be able to block a P-12 Psychop, and she's only a P-5. So we get that underlying development in her potential as a telepath, along with um, side by side as she's figuring out that maybe Psychor isn't all that it's cracked up to be. When I first saw this episode, I also bought it hook, line, and sinker. Uh, And I love the way that it is directed in that she appears to break the connection. She appears to have sold out the other telepaths and picks up the gun, da-da-da-da-da-da. And then as Bester smugly walks away, we go right back to the very same shot the very same angle where that crowd was originally standing um holding hands and they put their hands down right that static shot right there tells you everything you need to know about what happened so much so that i kind of resented the script for spelling it out for us even further what did you think you saw captain sheridan you know i i you know i i didn't need to be handheld quite so much about that but not every audience member did but yeah i bought it and i thought that that was really really well done the shock of seeing talia uh, shoot the other telepaths and then nope mm-hmm. it's not like that at all you know the shock covered for any you know lack of believability or whatever yeah, I too, the first time I saw this, completely, completely fell for it. And Stephen did too, actually. He told me afterwards, he's like, yeah, I thought she had she had totally flipped on them, which I think is a testament to the elegance of the, you know, the arc of her, her story that she, they didn't make her so black and white that suddenly she flipped a switch and it's very clear that she has changed her mind. Um, it, we really feel at the end that it kind of could go either way. So she is she's a well-developed character that that is making life choices as we are watching, which is right. one of the great things about Babylon 5. We get to see people make choices like this and then see their lives diverge and, and change because of the choices that they make. Um, so. Remember the ambiguity at the last episode when she didn't tell the others that she saw a psychop? in uh the in uh the mm-hmm. mars guy's mind so you know the, we 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 were kind of set up to believe that they, she would stick with psychor that she would support bester yeah. oh bester oh bester <laughs> how do you guys how are you guys liking bester now that we're uh, uh having having seen him a couple of times here tip you know he's a bit of a perv he was totally <laughs> he, he was totally trying to get into Talia Winters's pants, I believe. I think you're and right. oh my God, her face her her reaction back to him was priceless. Time to cover up. I am not feeling I'm not feeling at all comfortable here. Ooh. 
Yeah, you know, talk about a hostile work environment. Boy, would not <laughs> would not like that. Yeah, I, one of the things that it's simultaneously frustrating and happy making, but just how arrogant Bester has been set up to be. On the one hand, it's still got him kind of firmly in the place of a, of a comic villain. And it's like, no matter what he says about his own home or his own life to, you know, to make himself seem like a nicer guy, we are so primed not to believe it. Um, on the other hand, that arrogance is just making us, you know, cheer when uh, things go wrong for him. Uh, the, the fact that he's totally blind to Talia's internal conflict. He, you know, he, he's supposed to be this great telepath. And, you know, in theory, he would have developed, you know, as a as an investigator, the ability to like read body language and read, you know, what, you know, not not just his telepath abilities, uh, but, you know, just general observation. And he's got no clue that Talia is anything other than right by his side. With or without the fake out. Ouch. <laughs> That's an interesting point. You know, I wonder if because Bester is such a strong telepath and he's been relying on that skill for his entire life, he never bothered to develop the actual, you know, n- the mundane, normal skills that a detective would need to have. So well, perhaps he's not good at reading body language or any of the, the other sorts of things. Those skills have atrophied because he just never needed to use them. Perhaps. So my thought was, you know, they make such a big deal about how telepaths aren't supposed to be using their powers uh, unless they have permission, which is why I would have thought if he was such a good investigator and has risen in the ranks that he, that he would have developed these other talents so that he didn't have to rely on it. But you're, maybe you're right. Maybe he's um, been that arrogant all along and never done Never done so. Or, or maybe he developed them a bit when he was coming up through the ranks. And then once mm-hmm. he reached, you know, because we're, we're kind of getting an idea at this point that Psychops are uh, are maybe not so. A um, really big deal. Yeah, yeah. like maybe they, they don't care so much about the rules. I don't know. He seems like he's he's kind of shifty. So yeah. um, this is a really good second outing for him, though. Um, I like his mustache twirling, even though he doesn't have a mustache. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and, and when you've got a recurring character. You know, it's the second episode that's really more important than the first. I think that Bester develops further as a character. He's uh seems a little more menacing. He seems it's not like, oh, here's another Q episode, you know. Uh this, the, <laughs> the, the 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 second the second Q episode in Star Trek the Next Generation was awful. That's the one where he gives Riker the Q powers and stuff like that. And uh, the second Bester episode is strong. It continues the. It, it's clearly the same character doing uh, doing Bestery things. The one big difference is that everybody on the station knows him except our lead character, uh, our nominal lead character. He's not that much of a lead in this episode, uh, Captain Sheridan. And mm-hmm. it's fun watching everybody around Sheridan. Just absolutely bristling at uh, Brett Bester's presence, and you know, check the Jason Ironheart files. You'll uh, you'll you'll learn a lot. You know, that's 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 mm-hmm. kind of neat. And Bester even says towards the end that he had expected, or he he had been told that Sheridan would be sort of more congenial towards what they needed from in Psychor. How did you guys feel about Sheridan's reaction? I mean, it wasn't like a super strong reaction. He didn't sort of he wasn't all Sinclair and being up, upset at him somewhat immediately. Uh, but he he certainly wasn't a pushover and sort of seemed to side with the uh, with his crew a little bit uh, to start with. Um, 
Shannon, how did you feel about that interaction? What I had in my notes, and this sort of applied both to his dealing with Bester's presence on the station, as well as uh, the resolution between Talia helping to uh, hide the telepaths and convince Bester to go away and discovering that Franklin was behind this little underground railroad. Sheridan was really pragmatic throughout most of this episode when dealing with the station with station business. You know, he's like, you know, okay, the guy's here. I've got to deal with him. Um, I will deal with him. Okay, you guys have solved the problem, but just get it off my station. It all seemed like Sheridan was just very much trying to react on an even keel with whatever was being thrown at him in this episode. So, yeah, Chip, what did um, you think? Um, I keep coming back to that closing line about Bester having being disappointed in Sheridan, thinking that Sheridan would mm-hmm. be, you know, and just go back to previous episodes this season where Sheridan's uh, selection, sort of a formula guaranteed to piss off the Minbari, a more military guy after Sinclair had been upsetting the Senate a fair bit. And then we go back to Sheridan's newly announced awareness of Bureau 13 because he's a a conspiracies dude, it makes Sheridan look a little shadier. And I like that. That's a a bit of a contrast to uh, our happy-go-lucky dinner date guy uh, today, but we'll also... (laughs) We'll get there. We'll get there. And that's actually something else I put in my notes, the Sheridan's uh, little chess game. It's the first time we've really seen him pull moves that we would expect from Sinclair. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And before before we jump to the uh, the we have to pay rent now, what uh, plot line? Uh, <laughs> I do. I want to just touch on uh, Dr. Franklin as the the leader of the Underground Railroad. Did that seem to make sense to you guys or did you think it was just too convenient uh, to have him be? This is where I explain what I said at the beginning of the episode. Um, ah. If you're watching, if you're listening to the Babylon 5 podcast the way you're supposed to be, and if you've never <laughs> seen, um, if you've never seen Babylon 5 before, so you're stopping at the spoiler gate. After the spoiler gate, we talk about the things that were set up here and future implications. And one of the things that I never talked about in the, uh, none of us did. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the spoiler section for the quality mm-hmm. of mercy was the down below medical clinic. Oh, the fact right. that that was set up. The, the yeah. fact that that was set up as a cover for the underground railroad. And uh, it if, explains more thoroughly why um, Franklin would have made such a big deal about some quack healer down below, because anything that threatened that clinic too much might expose what he'd been doing. Uh-huh. Exactly. So I can talk about that now, pre-spoiler in this episode, because that uh, that trigger has been pulled. But at the time, that was a serious missed opportunity that we, you know, we apologize now. <laughs> we're not perfect. We're not perfect. But I demand perfection of myself. And I am so sorry to all of you who stick around for the spoiler section who we let down. <laughs> okay. Take a breath and get over it. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Um, I do think it's perfectly in character from what we've seen of Franklin so far. If I remember correctly, um, 
I'm trying to remember which episode it was when uh, he and Delenn talk and he talks about the fact that during the Earth Mimbari War, uh, he wound up destroying the notes he'd made uh, of alien races that he'd encountered, including the Mimbari, rather than have turned them over to the government for them to try and use against the Mimbari during the war. Um, so this kind of move, if he believes people are being persecuted, um, if he believes people are being damaged like the psychor is doing to telepaths who don't want to follow the core. Um, yeah, if he can do something to help them, he's going to try and do it. Mm-hmm. That's true. It's believable. However, it is far more of an out of left field reveal than uh, the Talia uh, moves this time around. So it is sort of a surprise. It's me um, since we've never even had a hint that there's a telepath underground railroad until this mo- episode. And it's also a little frustrating to me that uh, when uh, Franklin meets Sheridan in Down Below and it takes Sheridan so damn long to figure out that Franklin is, in fact, his contact. And it's even kind of <laughs> obvious when Franklin passes the message on to Sheridan in the beginning. So that's uh, that's that's I'm kind okay of clumsy. I'm okay with it because the first again the first time that I saw it, I didn't I didn't catch onto that either. Like it wasn't until Sheridan got I'm it. Trying to remember. I got Did, it. Was that before or after Delin asked him on his date? Maybe he was too busy reeling over that. <laughs> <laughs> was that a date? Was that really a date? Uh, hang on. Yeah. Well, <laughs> one minute. I did I did have something else I wanted to say sure. about the telepath storyline before we move on to the other stuff. Uh, a couple of things that I really liked that I picked up on this time, I think, that I may not have picked up before. Um, of course, again, we see a lot of diverse people represented among these rogue telepaths. We have the, the Native American fellow. We have a woman. We have all of these people um, banding together, uh, linked by the fact that they are telepaths. And I also like the diversity among the command staff as far as what sympathies they had with the telepaths versus Psychor and so forth. Of course, we have, you know, Ivanova being very anti-Psychor with reason, uh, given the issues with uh, the history with her mother. But I also liked that both Garibaldi and Sheridan acknowledge that the Psychor is a problematic solution at this point. It, it's had time to, you know, it may have had good intentions in the beginning, but look at it now, they're not so, they're not 100% on board with it either. And I really liked the fact that they sort of acknowledged, you know, Talia's position being difficult and that sort of thing. I thought yeah. that was a nice touch. Yeah. Now that's some of that exposition dumpy uh, dialogue that we've sort of poo-pooed in the past because these are people it, who know everything that they're telling each other. So this is totally but, as you well, know, Bob. It didn't, it didn't but, feel... But <laughs> I, have that, I, mean, I actually have that scene in my notes, um, that it is that sort of a thing, except that for me, this one worked better because it seemed like it wasn't just like recapping, you know, these are events that happened. This was more of a sort of political discussion that two friends yeah, might have. Yeah, exactly. Like, this is, this is how I feel about it. I think that it is a problematic solution. And so it, it read to me more like a, a conversation that I would just have with somebody that I know about the political topic of the day. I think all three of us agree with that. Um, I also like uh, the return of, of our character from Chrysalis, uh, Garibaldi's informant, who turns out to be a massive mm-hmm. telepath in his own right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I like that he's got it all together. He's not just this odd guy in the shadows, but he is an organizer. He is a prime mover. You know, he, he he's the boss. 
And that's not something that you would have gotten from Chrysalis. Um, and I like the connection that he has to Jason Ironheart. You know, it all just comes together really delightfully. All of these little threads coming together in this episode, I think. And it's one of the most successful examples of plot arcs being, you know, the, the seeds being planted and then growing into something over time. Yeah, I think that kind of like this episode makes so much sense given what happened with the quality of mercy. This is tying a bow on it. I think this also makes makes it a little bit more make sense that uh, that Garibaldi's informant would have informed uh, because, you know, nobody else in Down Below in that episode was interested in talking to Garibaldi at all. And suddenly here's this one guy who's like, hey, come on in here. I've got some information for you. Now it makes sense because he's you know clearly a good person who just he's not just out for himself and, and trying to get by. He's trying to help other people. And he's a telepath. So maybe some of the information he got uh, that he got for Garibaldi is stuff that he you know got through perhaps illicit telepathy type measures because i mean he Mm -hmm. seemed to know an awful lot uh in that episode and now maybe we know why so this this sort of ties a nice little bow on on a couple of different things um and speaking of uh nice little bows actually i don't think glenn's dress had a bow um but but it was quite a dress uh i think we should move on to to talking about the the dinner date and i don't necessarily mean that it was a date in the romantic sense, although it ended up kind of looking like it, but just, you know, that's true. You can have a lunch date, you can have a coffee date. It doesn't have to be. I I had forgotten about this little bit in this episode until it showed up again. And I loved every bit of it. Um, The, the look on Sheridan's face as Delin starts off, like asking, you know, how, that they she that they ought to get to know each other better or however it was she said it and it's almost like he's got a deer in headlights thing going on until she finally says dinner and he's like okay dinner dinner i can handle dinner and that was marvelous yeah um, this is the first to- time that he's really aside from um the the crisis at the beginning of the season this is the first time that he's really had to deal with the Mumbari on screen up close and seriously and I can totally understand that during the headlights thing because, you know, he is the star killer, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing Stephen pointed out about Delenn um, talking about her not changing all that much except cosmetically. One thing he noticed right away is that she's mm-hmm. wearing color, like a much brighter color than even um, not be- you know before she puts on this, this slinky dress. Uh, her just her outfit is is much more vibrant mm-hmm. than it had been before. So more, I, I suspect. That yeah, that more was costuming. A, I think you're right. Choice. I think this since the transformation. Yeah, we're, we're seeing her wear yeah more colors, more more interesting outfits um kind of like you know we saw malari sort of getting darker you know so i think we yeah i I think we've got some more production development going on yeah you know i'm not a big fan of sheridan in this episode um and i don't think it's got anything to do with box leitner's performance i think it's got to do with the script but this thread sort of gets at it for me um the fact that all of a sudden delin decides she needs to get to know humans better And all of a sudden, let's have dinner and let's have this. It feels a little artificial to me that this scene is happening now and not any time before. It feels a little forced. The scene itself uh, and the character development between the two of them is great. But how we get there feels a little ham-fisted. And I see that in this. I see this in the rent thing. 
And I'm not even a big fan of how Sheridan handles how he handles Franklin at the end of this episode. You know, he about ripped Franklin a new one when he was having um, an, uh, when he was on the verge of having an affair with one of his patients. Franklin's been running a contraband underground railroad for people under his nose <laughs> and 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 Sheridan's pretty much don't do this again you know I'm not saying what I'm saying I'm not thinking what I'm right, saying right <laughs> right which is which is a great line but it's still it, JMS when he's on he's on when he's not entirely on he's too on the nose for me and at least as far as Sheridan this time around he's a little too you know, on the nose for me well, as far as the idea of uh, Delenn sort of being out of out of all of a sudden, I think is what you said, needing to to know more about humans. I I didn't find it that way. I mean, the only thing that was sudden was just the fact that she hadn't been in any episodes for a while, really, and then and then she's here. I got the idea that she changed because she wanted to understand humans better in the first place and, and be a bridge to them. So the idea of her asking to try to get to know humans better just seemed like a natural thing. And and yeah, maybe it should have happened yeah. a little sooner, but gosh, there's been a lot <laughs> yeah. going on. And they're trying to... <laughs> so shoehorning one more thing into another episode, I don't know that that would have been... Yeah, been the, uh, I'll, I'll tell the, you what this is. This thing. is the absofragenlutely damn it flag. Uh, we've 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 joked on this podcast before with the absolutely damn it you know it's a catchphrase for Babylon Five and I think this is the first this is the first time that we hear it this is the first time Sheridan said and it is a phrase that absolutely nobody would say yes of course this is 1990s television You're, there's there's no f bombs going to be dropped here but those are the kinds of things that make me feel like the story isn't as real as I would like it to be it's a little too quippy. Yeah, and I I like the quippiness. So I I like the absofragenlutely because it just it I don't feel like language is going to be exactly the same by then and you mm-hmm. know maybe fragging isn't exactly the word that it will evolve into but it's going to be something that's a little bit different. So as long as it's not as long as the dialogue isn't like sprinkled with those types of things all over the place like we sometimes get in these uh <laughs> in like the Larry mm-hmm. Tillo episodes, I, I'm okay with a, a little bit of one here or there. And in this case, you know, it's it's not even that far off than something that we might actually say say now and i i enjoy the sort of the cute quippiness of of sheridan and the way that he handles both the delen situation and the and the rent oh situation. the rent situation so so yeah i'm still <laughs> yeah why don't why don't we chat about that very briefly i mean i think i think shannon was right that this i even have in my notes that this was sort of a sinclairian solution to the problem in the end he ends up just you know funneling some of the government's money back to itself which i think is exactly the the same kind of thing that jms would have written for sinclair to do if he had still been here at this point Mm -hmm. so i just think sinclair would have thought of it sooner and we wouldn't mm -hmm. have had to try the the sleeping in the office thing yeah, you're probably yeah. right. Sheridan strikes me as a little bit more of a hard-headed soldier when it comes to comes to that sort of that sort of thing, and, and doesn't. Uh, there's there's only it. one thing about that whole little C plot D plot that I liked, and that was the fact that <laughs> as they're settling down for the first of what is likely to was likely going to have been many unpleasant nights for Susan. Sheridan's coming off of the dinner date with Delenn, and I heard a good joke today, and he proceeds to tell Minbari ethnic humor, and it's a it's it's not a great joke, and you know if you're a 
if you're politically correct or just politically sensitive, or if you're, I don't know, the military governor of a diplomatic station, maybe telling a joke about Minbari is possibly not the most <laughs> sensitive thing. But I actually really like that because if I'm Sheridan and one night, one night they're one night they're shooting at you, the next night they're asking you out to dinner, you know, I'd be feeling a little unglued in the universe right now and one of the ways that i'd tried to restore normality is to you know make minbari the other again so i think that's a that's a that's a toss away that's a toss away joke and it's goofy and it's bad and it makes ivanova roll her eyes but i think it is very very true to the character (laughs) you know i got the impression that those were some of the jokes that they were telling over dinner. So I wondered if maybe he had even heard that joke from Delenn at dinner saying, hmm. you know, what, please, exp-, you know, because she's trying to understand human human humor and being like, you know, here's this joke that I heard about the Minbari. Can you please explain why it's funny or, you know, what, what the humor in it is? I Because hmm. they spent this whole time focusing on laughter and humor and, you know, Sheridan you know, knows about the laughing Buddha and, and he's he's trying to enlighten Delenn as to how, how laughing and humor are important on Earth. I assumed that the conversation just went on and on and they were talking about more jokes and he just still had those in his head from dinner i got the strong impression that he was taking everything straight from dinner to there not that this was not that that was a reaction to the dinner anybody else quite possible (laughs) quite possible i I can no i i can see both both possibilities at at this point so i just the main thing i took away from that scene was just you know how blatantly annoying sheridan was being uh, just continuing to talk and continuing to talk and ivanova is trying her darndest to like get comfortable enough to go to sleep and sheridan won't shut up <laughs> so i don't subscribe to your newsletter erica but it's a well-written newsletter really yeah see and i feel i feel <laughs> to me it just seemed like that was the obvious authorial intent so i'm, I'm gonna have to stay subscribing to my newsletter and not yours green <laughs> purple <laughs> Oh, we're back to this again. Um, but I, and his uh, his annoyingness at the end, I really just read that like I I didn't think that this was supposed to be a romantic date. But boy, his reaction to it afterwards was exactly yeah. like my reaction to a really good, exciting date with somebody. You know, even if it's an accidental, that's you just true. Meet somebody and you spend a whole bunch of time talking and you just get so excited and you just want to keep that excitement alive. So you're just jabbering on and on after the fact to, mm-hmm. to kind of make it last year. You know, adrenaline that, is still running. That, so that makes sense to me. Yeah, the, the fact that he, he was still all eager to, to talk and chat and, and keep going. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to just touch on very, very briefly, um, back to the, the Talia story, was just I, I kind of appreciated Garibaldi's reaction to her kidnapping. Um, you know, for, for like Stephen was shipping them a little bit, uh, Talia and Garibaldi. Mm-hmm. And, and that uh, I think Garibaldi's shipping them. Oh heck yeah! So his, you know, he was he he was pretty upset at the idea that she was was off and and kidnapped and possibly mm-hmm. being hurt and and of course Bester is just completely not getting it, totally oblivious to the idea. Well, she doesn't have anything that they need, so what? Oh, Bester. Yeah, mm-hmm. So I thought that was that was that's really, really good and. It is exceptionally well-placed coming after the previous episode where they actually, instead of her 
kneeing him in the groin in the elevator one more time. You know, um, they've finally gotten past the flirty uh, or him attempting to flirt with her. One-sided the one-sided flirt. flirtation. Yeah. Where they actually started to see each other as people and actually connecting as individuals. So now she gets in trouble and now Garibaldi's really upset because it's really personal. It's not just... Uh, it's not just this person he's got an interest in. It's somebody he knows and cares about. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And then to uh, to try to close things off towards the very, very end of the episode, Chip already mentioned the Psycor logo off the pin in the ominous, ominous foreground. Uh, we have Talia mm-hmm. going to talk to Ivanova at the end, which I think is a very interesting choice given their, their history. Though to me, it makes perfect sense because Ivanova is the very first person to sort of, you know, dri- start driving a little tiny wedge in her her mm-hmm. her loyalty to the Psycor. And now that she has busted out of it, you know, she's she's gone to apologize, but she's not just going to apologize. She brought drinks. So what, mm-hmm. what did you guys make of that scene? Like Erica, I thought it made perfect sense for, yeah, for Talia to go to Susan. Uh, you know, the, like you said, the, the person who first even threw up the possibility that Psychor was problematic. Also, you know, maybe feeling like, you know, needing another woman to talk to about these things rather than, you know, Garibaldi or Sheridan or even Franklin uh, may have made a difference as well. Yeah, I, and it's not yet another example of how great this episode is in sort of taking a bunch of threads and knitting them together. Uh, this is not the most momentous episode that we've had in the last uh, year and a half or so of Babylon 5 episodes, but it is such a great illustration of um, everything coming together. And the arc of Talia and Ivanova sort of intersects believably here after every other experience the two of them have ever had. Mm-hmm. Did, did either of you guys read like possibly a little romantic vibe there? Because I mean, Ivanova's in her. It was champagne. Now. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and, it was, and, it, and it was champagne. It wasn't just, you know, um, you know, asking, you know, can we can we have a drink and seeing what Ivanova had? No, she she brought a bottle. Mm-hmm. So, and man, yeah. I want Ivanova's nightgown. That like <laughs> the, oh, yeah. the blue slinky. I just that looks really comfy. Yes. All right. Well, anything else you guys want to cover before we jump into spoiler territory? I want Shannon to have Ivanova's nightgown. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Here, here. Perils of <laughs> podcasting with your spouse. <laughs> Uh, well, okay, then, before we head to spoiler space, I want to remind everybody to come and see us online. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and Tumblr at B5 Audio Guide, and our website is B5AudioGuide.com, where we have threads both spoiler-filled and spoiler-phobic. So regardless of whether you've seen the show or not, there's a place for you to talk about it. Please let us know what you think. Um, did you agree that this was, was a non-momentous but really solid episode, or did you find some cracks that, that we didn't find somewhere? Um, and... You know, I actually forgot to look up what our homework is for next week. So, Chip, will you tell me? <laughs> I will be happy it, to soulmates. tell you. I oh. was going to tell her. <laughs> I I get to moderate this one. I'm looking forward to it. Written yeah. by Peter David. This was flipped in our schedule. Uh, so yes. it we are wa- we are watching it after A Race Through Dark Places, even though it's the other way around on your DVDs. Yes, that is right. I, I remember that there was one that we skipped. I just wasn't certain if we went back to it right away. So good to know. So yeah, everybody check out Soulmates and then uh, join us next time for that. Uh, everybody who has watched the series before, hang on tight because we are about to jump into spoiler space. 
Okay, so what did you guys really think of the dinner date? Were you as excited and going like, ooh, 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 as I was? Because I was just... Happy, happy, happy. Oh, I was loving it. I was <laughs> loving it from Delenn just silencing the entire restaurant. And then, you know, these guys obviously ogling her dress and Sheridan just glaring at them. I mean, you know, it was beyond, hey, respect this ambassador. It was, you know, like, hey, get away from my woman. I mean, just it it foreshadows so well. It I, I foreshadows really, really like it. too much. You think? I think. Um really? Yeah, really, really. Um, it, I think, and, and I don't think that you'd get this the first time around. Uh, so I think that that's, and I, I, I'm interested in Stephen's reaction to that. But uh, Sheridan and Delin, it's the big love story of Babylon Five. In the original arc, in the original plan, it would have been Sinclair and Delin. But this is sort of the moment where JMS says, "Okay." I've switched these characters out. The pairing is going to be Sheridan and Delenn. We need to start making that happen, and here's the first move. And in retrospect, it seems a little forced. Uh, and I sort of alluded to that before the jump gate. It's a great scene. And, uh, yeah, like I said, uh, I, I want to know what what Stephen thought. Because in retrospect, it seems a little too obvious to me. Well, he did say, they're going to have sex, aren't they? But... <laughs> but <laughs> Okay. That is also just Stephen. Um, (laughs) Just Stephen reading the way television works. Uh, But he, you know, he didn't say anything specific about it besides that, which was, you know, in his typical quip type delivery, just as we were watching. Um, And then actually, just, you know, you get like just a scene later, Bester kind of coming on to Talia. And, uh, and, you know, asking her for, well, it's breakfast, not dinner. But Stephen's just like, what's with all the sexually awkward dinner dates in this episode? <laughs> he's like, I, now here's the question. Like, did, did Stephen pick that up with Talia and Susan at the end as well? He didn't say anything about it. And I didn't want <laughs> okay. to call right, it out. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. He didn't he didn't make a joke about that one. But he did say, yeah. like, after the, the Bester thing, he's like, it's like JMS ships his entire universe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I guess maybe he did pick up on that. I, I had that. I had. I just about had a. Don't say the word shadows moment with you, Erica, when you uh, asked about whether in before the jump gate when you asked about whether people noticed any romantic tension mm-hmm. between Talia and Ivanova, and I realized why that was. This series was made in the nineties. Same sex relationships. Mm-hmm were still quite the novelty on Mm -hmm. television back then. Um, So um, back then, me watching this, I wouldn't have picked up on that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I wondered about whether I should even bring that up, but I figured because we are recording this podcast now when same-sex relationships are on TV all over the place and it's just a normal thing, I felt like it would have been disingenuous to, like, if we had been watching this cold for the first time, we would have mentioned it, so I had to bring it up just just to get it in people's people's minds so that we're not, you know, it would have been suspicious had I not, I thought. (laughs) Yeah, true enough, Mm -hmm. true enough. Uh, But yeah, uh, and that's kind of interesting. It's, it's It's a proper love triangle between Garibaldi, Talia, and Susan. And why well, and why and why did I, don't I know how, and why did I give Garibaldi the last name and Talia and Susan the first name? That's sexist itself. Because nobody calls him Michael. Like I yeah, do this exactly. too. Yeah. I don't know if it's out in and out in the open uh triangle necessarily. I mean it's just 
and maybe this is just me looking, you know, back in hindsight, you know, just, you know, even though, yes, Garibaldi is obviously interested in Talia, I just never, ever really got the idea that Talia would ever be interested back in Michael. So, yeah, I'm here, you know, while... And then, you know, we'll probably talk about this more in a few minutes, you know, questioning whether Talia's interested in, interest in Susan is, is Talia or is it control? Because mm-hmm. I saw a whole lot of seeds being planted that I could read in the control issue in this episode. Well, so. why don't you go into that? I'm, I'm interested to hear. Well, the thing that really stopped me for a second uh, at one point was uh, a scene where Talia, if I remember correctly, she's started to learn about um, the telepaths um, and and their situation. And she winds up looking in a mirror. And for a minute there, I was just like, okay, is that Talia looking at Talia or is that control telling, you know, taking control, doing whatever needs to be done next? Very much so. The, the the whole the presence of control was in the back of my head through almost all of this episode, um, which I think, you know, is another reason that it makes more sense for it to follow immediately on Spider and the Web rather than putting soulmates in between them, um, as wound up happening on the DVDs. I also had in the back of my head uh, the fact that none of these super powerful P-12 telepaths that were trying to run away from being Psychops, none of them could sense Control's presence. You know, I, I would have to go back and look at the episode where Lita Alexander comes with the news to know for sure whether that would happen or the fact she's that... She's got the you know, password. Is best or... Okay. She, yeah, but... She, she's got that, the That's password. not what I mean. That That's not what I mean. Um, I mean, whether any of the other telepaths could sense just the... The fact that Talia had been tampered with, not releasing control and forcing it into the open like the password does. Um, I don't know. Um, I also was wondering... It's possible that Jason Ironheart's gift inadvertently uh, disguised that, whereas... Hmm, That's a good point. That's a really good good point. point. Yeah, because I was also wondering how much Bester knew... I mean, certainly he knew after the fact... You know, we've got his little snide remark to Garibaldi about how, you know, they dissected her. Um, But is Bester aware of the existence of control in this episode? Is that one of the reasons he's so sure about her? Because he knows control is there, keeping things, keeping her on the straight and narrow. And the way that he's sort of scanning her or trying to scan her at the end of the episode Mm -hmm. or just looking at her just Mm -hmm. carefully, you know, I think there's something about her that troubles him. And it's not what he expects. So yeah, I think mm-hmm. it's I think it's entirely possible that he knew that uh, she's got control in there. My last thing um, with um, with control. The other thing that I thought of this time around um, was Talia's choice to go to Susan and you know open up to her a little bit more, or you know I say thank you, I need to talk, whatever. That felt completely like one of those moments that control talks about later, you know, I knew, you know, I knew exactly how to work on you. I knew exactly how to draw you out to be, you know, somebody that I could get information from. This felt like a control move just as much as it might've been a Talia move. Oh my God. I hadn't really thought about that. And now I feel sick to my tummy. Yeah. I'm sorry. Oh yeah. No, that's okay. It's, I think it's legit. I think you're probably exactly Mm -hmm. right. Well, it's both. It's, it's, uh, it's control taking advantage of the situation and speaking, you know, whispering to her in the background, you know, I have no doubt that Talia genuinely wanted to get closer to, uh, Ivanova 
mm-hmm. uh, and controls like, yeah, you should go do that. <laughs> nudge, nudge, nudge from inside your brain. Yeah, mm-hmm. pretty, pretty awful. Um, and let, let I also wanted to point that out. You know, at the end, the uh, the lead the lead telepath whose name we never we never get. Um, it says to says to Talia, you know, this should not have worked. You're the future, yeah. and it's fascinating to look at what happened, what Jason Ironheart did to Talia. Talia is clearly on the trajectory at this point to become the sort of big bad telepath warrior up against the Psychor that Lita Alexander becomes at the end of the series so it mm-hmm. takes mm-hmm. it takes um when andrea thompson decides to leave the show because she's not getting enough going on the control personality has always been part of her storyline right from the beginning so it's possible that you know reflection ter- surprise terror for the future it's possible that that would have been used to save talia to keep mm-hmm. uh, to keep the character going uh, on this time Ooh, but um i like that but instead, what we get is control is triggered, Talia's written out, and Lita Alexander is brought back in, goes to the Vorlon homeworld, gets manipulated by the Vorlons, comes back as an increasingly powerful telepath, and basically follows the same arc. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to slotting Sheridan in where Sinclair was. You have to make some changes, but we've got this part of the arc that's important. So we're going to have somebody fit in it by golly. By golly. So we're going to have a dinner date tonight. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I, and yeah. I do, you know, I do have to agree, jumping back to that, that that it is a little bit fast as far as getting the romance on board. But I think that it works better than if it had been the other way around. If we had Sheridan first, his type of character in there first, and then we put a yeah. Sinclair-like character in second, I, I don't think that would have worked because Sinclair is clearly the kind of person who needs to build up to this. Whereas mm-hmm. Sheridan, from day one, I keep calling him a wide-eyed puppy, and I still think that that is a great description because he is he's much more enthusiastic about things, and he just gets excited. So the idea of him, I mean, the very first time he saw Delenn when she walks in and she's got the hair and yeah. stuff, I mean, the look on his face was, I think it was not just awe that he was seeing a Minbari with hair, but that he was seeing a beautiful Minbari that, like, that, that caught something inside him. It was, it was just a, a love at first sight kind of a look. And, and I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with, with that as a trope, um, slotting it into the science fiction. I like when those two sorts of things dive together. So, so I'm all right with this mm-hmm. being sped up a little bit. That's a good point. And it's a good scene on its own. Even if Sheridan and Delenn had instead developed the sort of friendship that was retroactively applied between Sinclair and Delenn. You know, even if their even if their relationship had gone sort of in that direction, this would still have been a good scene. Yeah, and I and it this particular scene may have felt a bit sudden, but if I remember correctly, it's still a very slow, steady progression from oh, here out for a amazingly while. Amazingly, so, so. It, yeah, it's almost so. it's almost it's almost Puritan how slowly uh, JMS mm-hmm. goes with this thing. Well, it's the Mimbari. Yeah, it's also JMS. He's also said some things online that he's got some pretty old-fashioned attitudes towards that sort of thing. Uh, But yeah, Yeah, like it takes it takes it takes freaking forever for them to get to the first kiss. 
you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, but I, I kind of like that and not because I have puritanical views or anything, but I think simply because they are coming from such vastly, vastly different places. I love the fact that they are being careful about it and not just vastly different places, but they are also in both in positions of great, great power. So they know that that any kind of emotional entanglement, regardless of who it's with, is going to screw with the the fact that they have to, you know, be clear-headed and make decisions and stuff. And the fact that it's with each other complicates things even more. Um, it, it gives me greater respect for the characters that they are willing to to think about that and and not just jump into bed with each other because they think they're hot. Mm-hmm. Anything else looking forward that this episode brought brought up for you guys? Um, I've got a couple of little things. Um, The first thing was um, going back to uh, the scene where where Sheridan and Ivanova are having to bed down in his office and he just keeps talking and keeps talking. And Ivanova makes the wisecrack of, you know, were you ever married and something like that. And, you know, of course, we know at this time that, you know, he had been married to Anna Sheridan, who, you know, who's now dead. And Ivanova's crack of she was a saint. Um, that sort of thing. It also reminded me of the fact that we will learn later on that Sheridan was briefly married to Captain Elizabeth Lockley, who oh, will be commanding right. Babylon 5 in season 5. And he actually, you know, that's th- and now the antagonism between the two of them, this scene makes that a little makes that fit a little better. <laughs> So. You know, I speaking of Captain Lockley, um, I also was thinking of her earlier just uh, when we have Bester. This is the second Bester episode. I just remember Bester coming mm-hmm. the first time he shows up after she's in charge and she's just sitting down with them having nice drinks. And, you know, everybody else sort of flips out that uh, uh-huh. that, that it's such an interesting choice to, to put her on good terms with him. I like that. Yeah. Um, the other thing that ran through my head at one point, um, I don't remember the exact scene where apparently Bester's trying to humanize himself and mentions being married and having a child or something like that. Yeah, it was and terrible. my first thought went to, yeah, and you had a mistress too, you slime bag. So yes, yes, we have the same thing. You know, his his mistress will get you know used for shadow experiments or whatever it was uh, going on. So yeah, just little all sorts of little things that connect. Uh, surprisingly enough. Mm-hmm. Or maybe not Chip so any- surprisingly. Yeah, well, yeah. Chip, anything else from, from you? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I uh, On the on the, uh, on the the Bester's family thing, I tend to think that that was a great line that JMS put in there for Bester in this episode. And then JMS decided a little down the line that, no, he needed a more human connection to push Bester into working with uh, the army of light against the shadows. So, so hey, retro, retcon. Let's put in. Let, let's let's give him a mistress. So, but it's. I feel like it's a retcon that fits because doesn't he say that that his wife was it was a more of a chosen breeding yeah, sort yeah. of thing? There, he, there, and he, he says there's no love there, which that for me that sort of works against the t- picnics in Syria Planum or whatever. You know. Well, just, I mean, he 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 can love his kid, and I think that this in this case. No, is, it's Bester. He can't. <laughs> So he can love his mistress, but not his kid. What? It's Bester. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I read it as just Bester trying his best to sort of humanize himself for Garibaldi. Right. So I, right. I didn't necessarily care whether there was much sincerity behind it or not. I just thought it was it was good mustache twirling. <laughs> and and really, isn't this the beginning of a beautiful friendship between Bester and Garibaldi? I mean, come on, this is where it really happens. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I think on that note, it's uh, it's it's probably time to take our leave and and get ready for next week. So thank you all for for sticking around and and listening. And we will see you next time when Shannon takes over and talks about soulmates. Again, come check us out on the blog b5audioguide.com and then at B5 Audio Guide on Twitter and Tumblr. Let us know what you guys think. Um, and is there anything else that that we have missed that points toward the future? I'll just know. I'll just mention four weeks. The Coming of Shadows. <laughs> Significant eyebrow waggle. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, yes. Let, let us end on that note. So uh, until next time, this is Erica in Edmonton, Shannon in Durham, and Chip in Durham. And you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. Babylon 5.